bless you folks. Wonderful to see you uh, today. I think this is one of the best things we've ever been invited to do, and that is to embrace a couple such as this uh, in prayer and in other ways. So I'm grateful for the class, class leadership in particular, for volunteering us for this mission. In our other classes, we've embraced other missionaries as well. So this is just a, a privilege. Well, we are in Second Thessalonians uh, chapter 2 today. I wandered just a little bit last week, which means like a lot. Um, but this week we're going to stick to the text, uh, sort of. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 is where we are. I'll tell you the background as you turn there, because we're going to pick it up midway. Um, these Thessalonians were believers, Christians, but new and easily shaken. And they were shaken because there were folks who said, you know what you missed out on? Jesus. Jesus came again. Somehow you missed out on his second coming. That was sort of the teaching. And so these folks, as you might imagine, were just a tad bit upset by all that. Oh, no. How could we have missed his second coming? What hope is there for us now? So Paul writes, as you'll see, uh, to correct that error and encourage these new believers. And the way he does it is to say, oh, yeah, Christ is coming again. You ought to be aware and ready, uh, but it won't be a big secret. You don't have to squeeze it out of the stars or read tea leaves or go to a palm reader. No, there will be noticeable, concrete indicators that his return is drawing nigh, one of which is um, the rise of Antichrist and the Lord's return to judge him. So that's what he he has spoken to them about, beginning in verse 8. Now, we're going to pick up in verse 13, but just by way of review, could I direct your attention to verse 8 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. There, Paul says, then, see, future, then that lawless one, what's another way to refer to the lawless one? Yeah, Antichrist, Antichrist. Hey, speaking of the Antichrist, um, those are ways to refer to him. For sure, Antichrist and otherwise. But do you know his actual name? Who who is he? Anyone here figure that out? You know, first and last name. I'm looking. What, what is, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so here's the deal. Um, um, the reason why we don't know uh, precisely what his name is. Uh, is because God has not intended for us to know. Um, so I, I think thinking about the Antichrist and his identity is legitimate. Um, taking the scriptures beyond where they wish to take us is not legitimate. So um, we have to be really careful. Everything we need to know is contained in scriptures, but not everything we want to know. And because what we want to know is not, in all cases, addressed by the scripture, then we're, we're left with speculation. So a lot of books are, are written, but they're very highly speculative. This is the Antichrist. This is, you know. So you be very careful about that stuff, it seems, it seems to me. Uh, um, so people have thought some, someone's name has been identified as the Antichrist. Um, so in every generation, there have been people who appear to be the Antichrist. For instance, if I was a Christian living in the time of Adolf Hitler, I would think, Man, he must be the guy. Or Joseph Stalin. And on and on and on and on. And why is that? They seem to have characteristics really resembling the Antichrist. That's because they do. You see, Satan in every generation has his man ready to assume the world stage. Right now, the Antichrist is alive and well. Do you know that? Because when the timing is right, uh, Satan has to be ready for, for his man to, to do his thing. So we're not talking about an unborn personage. has to be someone uh, alive today. And because so many uh, of the world's notorious rulers have resembled the Antichrist, some people, I, th- I think, have assumed that is the Antichrist. So many people manifest anti-Christian characteristics but that doesn't mean they are the Antichrist. We haven't yet met up with him. Uh, we will. In fact, Paul is writing about it. Then that lawless one will be revealed, will be revealed. 
It, it will not come from a fanciful book. So I'm on that kick now. I don't know if you knew this. About uh, don't be distracted from the Bible by reading books about biblical themes. If I had to choose reading even good books about biblical themes or reading the book known as the Bible, I would, I would rather read the Bible. I mean, if I'm going to be on a deserted desert island, I only take one book with me, uh, me and Donald Trump, we, you know, because he thinks the Bible is, yeah, we, we would take, <laughs> the only difference is if you ask me what my fa- favorite verse is, I could, you know, I could probably tell you. It's, it's, it's not personal and private. Also, if I quoted to you <laughs> my favorite verse from, from the Bible and said it's in Proverbs, I would make sure it isn't Proverbs. So, vote for who you want, but okay. So, I, I, I would take the Bible, not, not books about the Bible, even though there are many good books about the Bible. Uh, but I would avoid books that tell you who the Antichrist is, seek to tell you who the Antichrist is. I mean, by name. So, anyway, then that lawless one will be revealed, will be revealed, future tense. It will be revealed by the God of Revelation. When he chooses to let us know who he is, we'll know. Whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. So, Paul is saying to the folks at Thessalonica, this hasn't happened. Antichrist has not come on the scene. The Lord Jesus, has, therefore, has not returned to deal with him. And Paul is saying, these are not subtle indicators. You will know. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power, signs, and false wonders. You know, we're kind of enamored by the supernatural. But there are lots of sources of supernatural activity. There is the Holy Spirit, which implies there are unholy spirits or demons. I would be very, very careful about just assuming a supernatural occurrence is, is to be um, embraced as being good. Um, someone wrote a book called The Beautiful Side of Evil. And the powers of darkness can concede and allow certain supernatural signs and wonders to take place uh, to get us um, distracted. Usually, we follow the one who's done the sign or wonder. Uh, and that's one of the reasons, one, one of the ways the enemy gets us distracted. If someone could pull off the supernatural or the miraculous, then we follow that person usually without discretion. I would be very, very careful about that because those these things take place. The issue is from whom? The Antichrist is going to be able, it says right there, to demonstrate himself with power, signs, and false wonders and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. Why? Well, because they didn't receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Do you know when you get saved, it's not just from the penalty of sin. It's also from um, delusion and deception. We have a much better chance of distinguishing truth from error now that we have the mind of Christ. It's not a guarantee. We can go astray too. But we have a much better chance of seeing things the way they are. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence. And you wonder, how could masses of people follow a... uh, a one who is uh, propped up under false pretenses. How could, come on, folks, we've had enough of that. How could millions of people follow the dictators of the world? We have this all the time. Um, how could millions? How could how could many many people vote for certain people who are very unqualified? I have to be careful here. <clears throat> um, it's just remarkable to me. How how could people vote for someone who, when you ask, do you know what that person stands for? They can't not tell you. They'll just say, I like the way he looks. He's a good speaker. Duh. <laughs> so, so there's a deluding is, is Is God's fault? No, no, no. Here's the thing about God. He will give us what we demand. If people, in essence, don't want truth, but they want delusion, okay. Paul will, uh, uh, the Lord will give a deluding influence so that they'll believe what's false in order that they all may be judged who didn't believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Okay, that's a description of a sorrowful group of people whose destiny is bleak and tragic. 
Now, Paul's writing this to the Thessalonian believers who are shaky already. Their faith has been shaken until the next word in the next verse. Verse 13, how does yours begin? Yeah, that's the most glorious word. Because Paul was saying, I told you about people group A, but you're not in that group. That's what he's about to say. He's going to distinguish the fate of believers from non-believers. He said, I've spoken to you in the previous verses about non-believers, but now he's moving on to believers. But we should always give thanks to God for you. We're thankful to God for you. Brethren, beloved by the Lord. Totally different designation, status, and description. They're shaky. They think they missed out on the second coming of Christ. Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Not only did you not miss out on it, you're in God's embrace. That's why we thank God for you. Not only that, do you know what God thinks of you? He loves you. You are beloved by the Lord. That's what he said. You're not forgotten by the beloved. By the way, are you into tattoos? If you are, I recommend this one. Get this phrase put on you somewhere. Beloved by the Lord. Yeah, put it right there on your forehead or something so you don't forget. Or if not, write it in the front of your Bible. (laughs) Something a little more subtle. Folks, that's who we are. Do you know? Whatever else may be true of us, this is the most true. Beloved of the Lord. That's the way it is. This affects everything. This affects everything going on. This affects situations we cannot explain or answer. But the fact is, no matter what, um, we are are beloved by the Lord. By the way, that's a verb um, to love, beloved by the Lord. And it's in a certain verb tense. It's not a Greek class, but I got to tell you this. It's called the perfect, a perfect tense. Not because it's perfect in the, in that it's, it's, it's specific designation. For instance, in English, we have three tenses. That's it. Past, present, and future, right? But in Greek, there's like a dozen. I think that's why God used Greek to give us the New Testament. Because the New Testament doctrine has to be precise. Greek is a very precise language. So let me tell you about perfect tense. Whenever I read, when I'm studying the Greek New Testament and I run across a perfect tense, I like, pay dirt, yeah. It's just loaded with meaning. I'll tell you why. Perfect tense refers to something that took place in the past but didn't stop there. It took place in the past but has ramifications for the present and the future. So what took place in the past wherein God demonstrated his love to us. Many things, but surely the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave a son to be crucified. On the cross, God declared pretty loudly, I love you. You who accept the reality of what happened on the cross, I love you. But if it's only past tense, we have to translate it, uh, you used to be the beloved of the Lord. You once were. But it's perfect tense, which says that event in which God demonstrated his love took place in the past, but it continues in the present. So you you not only are those who were loved by the Lord, you are those who are being loved by the Lord. And what's more, you are those who will forever be the beloved of the Lord. That's perfect tense. An event in the past that has blessed ramifications for the future. Just that word. Uh, implies eternal security. Just the use of the perfect tense says uh, past, present, and future, yours in Christ, characterized by his love. No matter what, what else may happen, he'll never, his love will never be. It's not like God said, you know what? 2,000 years ago, I had like a big love quotient for you people. You know, I was like in a good mood. Uh, and and uh, I poured out my love upon you, but it dissipated. I used it up. So my love tank is open in your presence. 2,000 years later, I ran out of love for you. All I can do is wish you that maybe my love tank will be filled up so that sometime in the future, maybe I'll pour out my love on you again. Oh, no. Perfect tense. I have loved you. I love you. I will always love you. That's what the, just the perfect tense, that's what it means. Yeah, Mike? Yeah. Nothing can separate. Perfect. It fits this perfectly, Mike. Absolutely. Can you see how encouraging that would be? 
to new believers who were shaken about uh, end times events, future events, and, you know, all this stuff, confused about it all. He said, but don't be confused about this. You are the beloved of, of the Lord. And why is he thankful to God for them? Here's what it says. Because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. God chose you from the beginning of what? Time. God chose you from the beginning of time for salvation. Now, here we're going to get a little controversial. It's going to be fun for me. Um, That is perhaps one of the clearest indicators in the Bible of something called divine election. And people who hold to this are usually called Calvinists. And for some of you, I just cussed in church. Seriously, just to use the term. Well, you can be as upset as you want, but I don't think this can be explained away because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. From the beginning of time, he chose you to be saved, which implies he didn't choose everybody, which implies not everyone has an equal shot at being saved. Wow. Now, we Southern Baptists are going crazy about this right now. I can see by your looks. Because, because hey, 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 let me, let me just, uh, I'll, I'll open it up for questions, but I want to complete a thought. So, so this, is, this is called divine election. That means you did not choose Christ. He chose you. Now, you can fight against that all you want. I'm just looking through the text right here. So don't be labeling me yet. Hang on. I'll give you a chance to hate me in just a second. I'm just reading you what it says right here. God has chosen, that's called election, you from the beginning of what? Of time. For what? For salvation. Okay. So, though that's true and undeniable, we haven't yet answered the question, what is the means by which he saves us? That's given in the very next phrase. Look, through sanctification by the Spirit and faith In the truth, that's called human choice. The means by which God God chose to save those who he elected to salvation is their response to the gospel. Do they put their faith in the gospel or not? So you know what you have in one verse? You have a coupling of two concepts which don't look like they go together. You have what's called divine election and... Free will. Which is it? Did God choose me or did I choose him? This verse says, yes. (laughs) But I'll tell you what people are doing today, not today, through the centuries. They're not allowing a yes answer. It has to be either or. Which is it? So if it's part A of this verse, you are a Calvinist. In fact, people will actually ask you, are you a Calvinist? Uh, The other option is uh, Arminianism, part B. Are you a Calvinist or an Arminian? Why do we get these terms? Calvin after uh, John Calvin, one of the reformers. Arminianism after a guy named Jacobus Arminius. That's that's with it. So Calvinism says you've been predestined to salvation. God made the choice based on his sovereignty. Arminianism says no. No one is predestined to it. You choose. Anyone can choose. And so people will say to you, as they've said to me, Stuart, they'll say to me, Stuart, are you a Calvinist or are you Arminian? To which I say, you know, here's your problem. Your your question is illegitimate. Uh, Why, why they say? I said, because you're limiting my response to only two options. There's a third option. What's the third? The third is both. Both. You're wishy-washy. I'm not wishy any more wishy-washy than Paul is. Here's a verse of scripture, which encompasses both divine election and human responsibility. Well, that can't be because they're contrary. Just because I can't harmonize them don't, doesn't mean they both don't come into play in the plan of salvation. I mean, what kind of God? Do you serve a God you can fully understand? That would make him your friend. 
your peer, your equal. No, no, no. He, he, his wisdom far exceeds ours. So let me illustrate this. It's a bad illustration, but it's, a, it's all I can come up with. I've shared it before. I'll do it again because I feel like it. So imagine you're on railroad tracks. You're standing between the two rails. One rail is the rail of Calvinism or divine election where God predestined you to salvation. The other rail is, no, no, no. This is where I choose when I hear the gospel. I choose to accept it or not. Um, those, those rails run parallel to one another, meaning they'll never come together. That's what it means, parallel. They run side by side, but never, they'll never intersect. But then you look down the road, you look down the, the tracks, and in the distance, it appears as if they're coming together, doesn't it? It's interesting. Artists make use of this. It's called perspective. On, on a canvas, you, artists give us perspective. So in the distance, it looks like the rails are merging together. Imagine these two rails of uh, two concepts, which we can't bring together. If you're able to look way down the road into the infinite mind of Almighty God, they do come together. They harmonize in the mind of God. That's why we worship him. We don't worship him because we have him figured out. On the contrary, we worship him because he can do things with his mind we can't do with our very limited mind. Somehow, both come into play in the plan of salvation. I agree that from before time, God had his eye on me. I agree. At a point in time, I was given the choice of accepting or rejecting Christ Jesus. Now, here's the deal. There's lots of fights in the Southern Baptist Convention saying some of our churches are dividing over this issue. Um, it's a crazy thing to divide over, for crying out loud. I can think of better reasons for us to be, a, to be at odds with one another. This is, not, this is not one of them, but I'll tell you why. Because people are being forced into a box. Is this a Calvinistic church or an Arminian church? I mean, there's option B. But I'll tell you why. Uh, those who resent Calvinism, this is, why, this is why they don't want anything to do with it. They're actually thinking of what's called hyper-Calvinism a hyper or extreme Calvinist, really an aberration, is someone who says, since God already made the decision about who's going to be saved from before time, just as we read here, there's no need to share the gospel. It's a waste of time. Why do evangelism, why support missionaries if the decision is already made? That's called a hyper-Calvinist. Has anyone here ever met someone like that? You did? You met one? I never did. I suppose they're out there. But I'm telling you, they are the statistical anomaly. The average Calvinist is as evangelistic as the Arminian. Are you kidding me? I could give you the names of certain Calvinists in our day, and you would be a little shocked that they are because they're most, the most evangelist. You know why? Because the Calvinist says, yes, I believe God determined from before time who will be saved, but the means by which the elect are revealed is through their response to the gospel. You look at a big crowd, you look at a crowd like this, you can't tell who's elect to salvation and who's not. How do you smoke those out? Share the gospel. Based on response to the gospel, if someone responds to the gospel in the affirmative, you can say, ah, God had his eyes on that person from before time and enabled a response to, to the gospel. So Calvinism or divine election doesn't rule out grace commission efforts. Some would say it actually accentuates them. In fact, it makes such a joy. It's like going on a treasure hunt in a crowd. You don't know who, whose heart God has already worked on from the beginning of time and whose heart is going to be revealed by you sharing the, sharing the gospel. So this accusation, this criticism of Calvinism, if you want to criticize I can give you better ways to do it. That's not a good way to do it. That's hyper-Calvinism. That's not John Calvin. That's not the average Calvinist by no means. Now, on the other hand, uh, Calvinists accuse uh, folks in our perhaps less Calvinistic background of easy believism. You know, we just, we just say to people, pray after me. Pray these words after me, and thou shalt be saved. You know, we dunk them in tanks real quick. We let them be members real quick. They uttered the magic words. So Calvinists say, yeah, yeah, yeah you people. You know, you, you just assumed someone could parrot some words and without a genuine work of salvation in their life, you're assuming they're saved. But the evidence is, where are all these people after you dunk them in a tank? They don't look like Christians at all, do they? They're not really living the life. You chalk them up, you count the numbers and all the rest. So we're accused of easy believism. And I think that's not exactly a, a very fair accusation. 
at all. You know what both sides are doing? They're criticizing straw men. So the non-Calvinists are setting up the straw man of hyper-Calvinism, which really is not the majority Calvinistic position. And Calvinists are setting up the straw man of easy believism, where we cheaply offer the gospel and don't look for the uh, fruit of salvation. So, so here's, here's the point. Um, it's both. It's not either or. And, to, and here's what humankind does to, to resolve the problem. We will almost arbitrarily choose one over the other. We'll choose one over the other. And that way we resolve it. That's not a way to resolve it. The way to resolve it is to say, I can't resolve it. It's resolvable only in the mind of Almighty God. You know, I'm sitting in the military barracks, September of 1973. Holy moly. And... Uh, a guy had shared the gospel with me a few days before. On September 5th, 1973, everything made sense. No one was in the room, just me. Sin and salvation through Jesus made perfect sense. I don't, I don't understand why it did. It's not the first time I've heard of Jesus. I grew up in America. People wear crosses all the time. There's churches on every street corner. I knew about Billy Graham. It's not like a mystery. But the mystery is, why is it on September 5th, 1973, the penny dropped and it all made sense? I'll tell you why. I think from before time, God chose me to be saved. And he saw that in time. I would hear the gospel. And he made it so that I could respond. So which is it? Did he choose me or I choose him? Yeah, both. That's why we can find as many verses on both sides of the issue, don't you see? You did not choose me, but I chose you. That looks like divine election. John 1.12. But to all who received him, he gave power. That looks like free will, doesn't it? You see what I mean? So you can have a verse swapping contest. And I'll tell you what people are doing today. They're dividing. Churches are being divided. Seminaries are being divided. And all this kind of stuff. Don't let anyone force you into a, a label. Are you a Calvin? You know what I usually say to people like that? Are you a Calvinist or Arminian? I usually say... Could you please first define those terms? Because I have a sneaking suspicion. You don't know what the heck you're talking about. I don't. I, I think that's true. I don't think they understand the issues. So I say to them, I'll discuss with you the issues. But if you're trying to put me in a box, so if I choose the wrong box, you could dismiss the rest of what I've had to say? No, we're not playing that game. I refuse to be put into your categories because you can't embrace a third. A third category. All right, so anyway, this is a glaring example. But, I'm, but, I'm, but I want to show you something. Um, the, text, the text goes on here just for a second. Verse 14, look. It was for this salvation. He called you through our gospel. All right. He called you. That's divine election. What's the means? Through the gospel. Through sharing it, hearing it, and believing in it. Can you see the two concepts again interplay? By the way, if Paul, who's writing about divine election, believed that the decision is already made, therefore no sense sharing the gospel, why in the world would God have sent him and Timothy and the, these other guys to the Thessalonians to begin with to share the gospel? Can you see how divine election doesn't militate or doesn't negate great commission efforts? They work hand in hand. It was for this. He called you. That's election. But how did he do it? Through the gospel. The gospel has to go forth so that people could hear and believe. Then it says that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus. He's writing to shaky Christians. They don't know which end is up. You know what he told them? From the beginning of time, God had his eyes on you. You know what he said to them? And in the end, he's going to bring you into the glory experienced by his own son. That's what he's saying. He's saying in the middle, it's rough going for sure. But at the beginning, God focused on you. And in the end, he's going to bring you forth so that you share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's kind of what it says. So now, um, oh, you know what? Before I get to the next verse, I kind of cut, cut you off. I apologize. The reason I did that is I didn't want to lose my train of thought because it's easy. You get to be older and, man, you forget <laughs> what you were saying. So anyway, would you like to take a shot at anything? Yeah, Dan, and then we'll go to, uh, to Mac. Okay, so uh, in Ephesians 1, 4 through 
Yes. Man, this is a great question. That's Daniel right there. Really fantastic. Did you hear Daniel's question? Oh, I'm sorry. The, the, <laughs> we just have to, you know, if you didn't listen. Okay. So Daniel, in Ephesians 1, uh, verses 4 and on, it talk, it's talking about a you group of people. And then uh, thereafter, it talks about kind of like a them group of people. Two groups of people. Uh, who are they? Okay, this is my, my take on it. First group are Jews. Second group are Gentiles. It's totally misinterpreted by the church. If you read it carefully. And then you lead into Ephesians uh, uh, 2 later on. It says, and both of us, so there are two groups, have been made into one new man through the cross. So first Paul is saying the elect are the Jews. That's what you fight me all you want on that, but that's called Bible stuff. <laughs> but you have been drawn nigh as well. Even though you're, you're not part of that covenant, you're not the elect, you're grafted in. Those are graphites. You, you guys are graphites. Uh, equal, equal rights and privileges now. There's no, there's no favored group in the eyes of God. We're all his, Christians are all, are all his kids. But anyway, that's what it means to me. And then, uh, Mac, uh, you're next. Mac, now I know you're a Christian, finally. <laughs> yes. To Daniel's, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, saves and none to perish. Yeah, um, it, it is by, by immediate application, but by general application, no, not just to them. All believers. Sometimes it's used to focus in on, on what the writer, you know, wants us to focus in on. And so it makes a theological truth concrete by identifying a particular person or people group. But the application oftentimes is much wider than that. Yes, ma'am. Oh, that's excellent. I love that approach. I mean, it's a great question. I really don't have any response to help with the marital disharmony at home. <laughs> you know, that's just going to require much, much, much more. <laughs> but it is a good thing. So, so just this is what necessitates careful Bible study. I'm not trying to cop out. But, but not everything in the Bible applies to everyone reading the Bible. You have to determine what that is. Let me give you a for instance. The Shemitah year, which I went crazy over last, last week. Just using it as an illustration. If you read about it, it only was given to Israel as a covenant people as part of an agricultural procedure. Book writers today have applied it to the United States, which are and since the United States is violating the practice of the Shemitah year, book writers are saying we're in for God's judgment. Well, we are in for God's judgment, but not because of that. The Shemitah year was never given to anyone but God's uh, covenant people. But here's the deal. Though not every practice in the Old Testament applies, every principle applies. So here, my dear sister, is where you are definitely not left out. Your full rights. So I'll give you a for instance. I was talking to someone before class 
about tattoos, or maybe the last class, I don't remember. Um, I think there are some reasons, maybe there's some logical reasons why not to get a tattoo. Um, But there are fewer theological reasons. So people will point to the Old Testament, Leviticus and other places, where it says, you know, don't do the tattoo thing. That was written to God's covenant people and saying to them, don't be like the Canaanites. Because tattooing then was part of the worship experience of the Canaanites. So today, if you want to get a tattoo, that's your business. Now, there may be practical reasons why not to. You know, I'm not telling you to... I, you just want to, you don't want to use the scripture wrongly. So when God said, don't get the tattoos, the context was just the Israelites to distinguish themselves from the Canaanites. So the practice doesn't apply today. If you want to get tattoos, go ahead. It's your business. Um, so the practice doesn't apply, but the principle applies. What's the principle? I called you to be separate, kids. Stop taking on the customs and ways, particularly of other other religious groups, but even of the godless culture in which you live. That's the principle. Let me give you one other one. New Testament, women are supposed to have their heads covered in worship. Uh, (laughs) Let's just look around the room. Somehow, by default, you're saying it doesn't apply today. And you're right. That was in a day when a woman without her head covered would look like a rebellious woman taking herself out from the umbrella of her husband, not submitting to his authority, kind of like you are. No, I'm helping. But, but, no, I don't answer email anymore. But anyway, I'll be busy getting a tattoo. But anyway, um, so, so, so today, so the practice today, if, so if you come into a worship environment, ladies, without your head uh, without a head covering, we don't automatically assume there's a rebellious woman on the prowl for someone else. That was the connotation. So the practice doesn't apply, but the principle does. What's the principle? Wives, submit to your husbands. You see? You see the... Can you see? So that's just... That's Bible stuff. Everything in the Bible applies, but not necessarily the practice. Always the principles behind it. So the Jubilee year... You know, we're in the Jubilee year and we're going to be accused of going downhill because we're Americans. We're not observing the Jubilee year. No, no, no. We're going downhill because of our uh, uh, ungodly financial decisions, not because we're violating the Jubilee year. But, so, so we don't have to practice that. What's the principle? It's the principle of debt retirement. It's a principle of forgiving debts. It's a principle of helping the poor. It's a, it's a principle of, uh, of equitably distributing the wealth of society. All those things apply. But the, but the how, how about this? Let me give you this one. People say to me all the time, Stuart, why don't, you're a Jew. Why don't you observe the Sabbath? I say, I do. What are you talking about? You go to church on Sunday, not Saturday and all that. You don't take Saturday off and stuff like that. No, you're missing it. Sabbath is permission to rest. Slave people Never had permission to take a day off. I have permission to rest now. Why? Because of the finished work of Christ. I enter into Sabbath rest when I accept the finished work of Christ. That's why it says in Hebrews, labor to enter into Sabbath rest. It's not a day anymore. It's a relationship. You see? So the principle continues, but not the practice. Now, if you want to take Saturday as your worship day, you're free to do it. But don't lay that trip on me. That's why it says in Colossians chapter 2, don't let anyone act as your judge with regard to a new moon observance, a festival, a Sabbath observance. These things are a mere shadow, but the substance is Christ. So all of these biblical practices are designed to point us to the substance who is Christ. He is our Jubilee year. He is our Sabbath rest. He is our Passover lamb. Can you see all these things? We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We don't go to the temple as they did in the Old Testament. We is the temple. Can you see how all of these practices, very concrete, are simply a foreshadowing of deeper uh, spiritual truths, which once you find them, you don't need the practice anymore. So anyway, that's a long answer to a short question. Daniel, you owe me, baby. I think uh, I'm, you know, I succeeded in making peace at home. Don't you think? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I said, look, I want to show you something. Verse 15, I want to show you. See the two, or beginning, maybe your Bible's a little different. My starts with so then. You got anything like that? So then, does that sound right? Something like that? 
You know what that means? It means now make an application. That's what that means. It means, here's what he did in the first few verses. He said, I stated the truth, declaration. I helped you with your interpretation. Now make application. Those are the three phases of good Bible study. Observation, what does it say? Interpretation, what does it mean? Application, what am I supposed to do about it? So that's what's happening right there, verse 15. Now it's application. So then, brethren, in light of what I told you about salvation and all the rest, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught. You know what he's saying? I just demonstrated to you that God has his hold on you and he saw you coming from the beginning of time and he's holding on to you so tightly that you'll share one day in the glory of his son in light of the fact that God has a strong grip on you. You should have a strong grip on truth down to this very day. Don't be knocked around by every wave and wind of doctrine. Cling to, now he says, look at this, hold to the traditions which you were taught. Now what does that mean? Does that mean man-made human religious tradition? I'll tell you in a second, many people think so. It's not true. Here's the other principle of good Bible study. Context. What's the context? The word traditions could mean the traditions of men, but it doesn't mean that. Here, look, hold to the traditions which you were taught. By whom? By Paul and the other apostles, which you were taught. How? Whether by word of mouth or by letter. What does that mean? Paul wrote this before the whole New Testament was completed. We call it the canon of Scripture. Canon means yardstick. We didn't have 66 written books of Bible yet. So Paul said, there were times when I spoke to you uh, truth face to face, whether that was the means by which I communicated to you these truths or whether it was in a letter, like 2 Thessalonians, the truths that came to you from Duly appointed apostles like me have become the traditions, the orthodox fundamentals of our faith. You should not depart from those. We have been distinguished by God through miracles, miracle working power. Do you know the apostles did perform miracles? By the way, the word miracle means attesting sign. What does the miracle sign attest to? Is it just theater? Just sensationalistic drama? No. The works of the apostles were a backdrop for the authoritative words of the apostles. Look at here. Jesus is crucified, buried, resurrected, and ascended. He gives his mantle of authority to his apostles, the ones who were close to him. They were fishermen, common people. How in the world are you and I going to trust ourselves to their words? Therefore, God authenticated what they had to say by allowing them the capacity for unusual miracle working power. Apostles. There are no writing apostles today. Why? Because we have the final book of the Bible, folks. There's nothing more to write. The book of Revelation sort of closes the story. So, So Paul is saying... Don't be shaken by all the, you know, people are telling you about that the Christ came already and you missed him and all this kind of, don't buy that. What did we teach you? What are the traditional truths, the tenets, the fundamentals, the building blocks? What's orthodoxy? That's what he's saying. Hold to those, the things you were taught, hang on to them, stand firm in them. That's what he's saying. So I want to tell you something. Uh, a lot of people take this, stand, hold to the traditions. They take it to be the religious traditions of humankind. So here I'll get a little potentially offensive still yet again. But here's the deal. If I ever offend you by something, um, you need to find out whether you're offended by the truthfulness of what I said or by the offensiveness of what I've said. If it's the offensiveness, you need to call me to task. You need to say, that was wrong. You offended me. And I hope I ask you for forgiveness. But if I've offended you by a truth statement, you may, not, may need to wrestle with that a little bit before you come after me. So I'm going to make a truth statement, I think. Uh, the Pope is still with us, right? He hasn't returned, I think, yet to Rome. Uh, he's been in many countries, including ours. Uh, sensational visits visit uh, sensational messages 
likability factor off the chart. I do not know the man personally. I have no criticism of his character in any way. He's referred to as the people's pope and maybe for very good reason. So please don't misunderstand. I'm just trying to tell you he's the pontiff or the leader of the world community of Catholicism. I just want to make a statement of Catholicism that is not coming from uh, a critical Southern Baptist little Jew boy. (laughs) I'm telling you, any Catholic priest will tell you what I'm about to tell you. So if you're offended by this, I can't help you if you're from a Catholic background. I'm just telling you the truth. In Catholicism, the traditions of the church have the same level of authority as the word of God. That is not an editorial statement. I'm telling you the truth. That's how it is. So when the Pope speaks ex cathedra as God's representative on earth, he speaks without error. His words have the same level of inerrancy as do the scriptures. So in the Catholic Church, you see, you have an amalgamation, a marriage, if you will, of two parties to the marriage. One, the the teaching of the church, teachings of the church, to the teachings of the Bible. The Bible is surely held in esteem in the Catholic Church. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. You'll get a reading from the Gospels, from the Epistles, and all the rest. When you take the Bible, Word of God, put it together with the Word of men, that marriage produces a a mutated baby, which is why in the Catholic Church, it's very hard to know how to be saved. I didn't say Catholic people are, uh, uh, can't be saved or are not saved. I said it's very hard to know how to be saved. Why? Because the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ is swallowed up in a forest of distracting religious tradition. You have Mary, you have saints, you have rites, you have infant baptism, you have membership in the church, you have the necessity of participating in the mass, the uh, holy communion in which... The elements don't represent the broken body and shed blood of Christ. They are the broken body. It's called the bloodless mass. Christ is present. Now listen to me. If you believe Christ is present in holy communion, literally present, well, you're going to feel a little obligated to show up to church to be permitted to take of those elements because that's how you take Christ in. We think the biblical position is what's called the memorialist position. So when we serve the elements, we think it's just as holy. We say, as Christ did, do this, what? In remembrance of me. He doesn't say do this because it is me. Do this in remembrance. So, So you have all these things. I didn't make up one thing right now. Now, if you think you're being unfair to Catholicism, prove me wrong and I'll issue a public apology. So, 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 so when you have a confusion between word of God, word of man, you get something quite distorted. Now, I just don't want to do uh, pinpoint. I'm thinking of Catholicism because the Pope is with us. Um, what about Mormonism? Let me just nail everybody. Um, <laughs> it's the same thing. Mormon people, uh, uh, wonderful people, uh, 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 will have the New Testament for sure. Same one we read. But along with the New Testament, which we agree to be the word of God, They will have um, the Book of Mormon and things called Doctrines and Covenants. These are the writings not only of Joseph Smith, but also someone named Brigham Young. You know, the university is named after Brigham Young. And so so when when you take the two together, you can be as offended as you want. I'm just saying if I'm wrong, let me know. If I've I've offended you wrongly, please point it out. Uh, uh, So when you combine, when you marry the New Testament with uh, these other writings, including the Book of Mormon, once again, you get a mutated child and you can't find your way to the simplicity and purity of Christ. Now, let me get on my people here. It's just equal, equal time to offend everyone. In Judaism, we hold what we call the Hebrew Scriptures. You would refer to it as the Old Testament. We call it the Hebrew Scriptures, particularly the first five books, the Torah, the Word of God. There's no question about it. So we've taken the Word of God And we have juxtaposed it with the word of our sages, our religious smart people, (laughs) rabbis, over the millennia. 
And when you get together, the product of that marriage is a mutated child. So in Judaism today, you can't find your way to the Messiah. Let me illustrate. I'm on a plane to Israel a couple weeks ago. I'm sitting in front of uh, three gals, beautiful young gals, college age. I stand up to stretch because I'm old. And I'm stretching. So I asked one gal seated on the aisle a brilliant evangelistic question. You should use this. I said to her, so what's up? It's brilliant. What's up? She looks at me. She says, nothing. So I ask the next brilliant evangelistic question. I said, where are you from? Oh, man, I am good. Where are you from? I mean, I'm just a knucklehead is what I am. But you got to start somewhere. Where are you from? She said, California. I said, ah, I'm sorry. (laughs) She didn't find that humorous. So I'm like bombing. So then I say the next brilliant evangelistic question, where are you going? (laughs) Exactly. She said, Israel. Israel, said I. Why? It's just conversation. You know what you should do? You should never go out to do evangelism. You should just go out to have conversation. Let it lead to stuff. So she said, Israel. Uh, I said, why Israel? She said, we're going there to study. It's three girls. Study? Whereabouts? A place called Safad. Oh, I know where it is. You know where it is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know where it is. Exactly. It's the um, center of the study of Jewish Kabbalah, which is mysticism. Also, gematria. Sounds like geometry. Jewish numerology. Bad stuff. How do I know this? Madonna goes there. Do I have to say anything else? (laughs) She's going there to find herself. Please save her. When she finds herself, she's going to be disappointed. I'm telling you this, right? She should look for somebody else. But anyway, Safad, they study this. And I said, so, so um, how do you think your study is going to help you? And well, one thing leads to another. One-hour conversation. In the course of things, I got to share with her Isaiah. I had our group memorize Isaiah 53.6 and just different things. Shared my testimony, shared this. They called two other girls. There were five of them, five against one. Because from a biblical point of view, uh, it takes five women to deal with one man. <laughs> I'm just saying. So, <laughs> oh, you're so sensitive. So, it was a conversation. But here's my point. Whenever I confronted them with a plain, simple verse of scripture, here's what they said every time. According to our sages, so for instance, I share Isaiah 53, 6. Can you please tell me? how this could be any plainer 700 years before the time of Christ. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Could you please tell me who the him is? I asked them that question. You know what they said? Well, our sages say it's a reference to Israel who has suffered. I said, hang on just a second. That just, it can't be true. If we look through the plain words, look, look, look. All of us, that's the collective, that's Israel, have gone astray. Each of us, that's Israel, has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him, that's an individual, the iniquity of us all, that's Israel. How could Israel be the us and the him at the same time in the same verse? Grammatically, giving it the plain uh, range of normal meaning, that can't be true. I said, with all due respect to our sages, it is not necessary for us as thinking Jews, I wanted to shame them, to have to make recourse to the words of people who aren't even on the plane when we could simply discuss the plain meaning of this verse. And then I told them, when the word of our sages contradicts the word of our God, which one are you going to choose? Now, that's when they got mad. Because in Judaism, as in Mormonism, as in Catholicism, as in Buddhism, as in Shintoism, as in anyism, is an amalgamation of the word of God with the word of man. And what a technique of Satan. Because then naive people will say, oh, it's just another legitimate 
Christian denomination or approach to God, they use the Bible. But when you wed it with the word of man, the product is a confusing morass of religious tradition. You can't even distinguish the word of God from the word of, of man. A lady on TV said when asked, you've been camping out here for several days. Why? I want to see the Pope, she says. I just want, do you think you will see him? I don't know. I just want to get, uh, have the best opportunity I could to see him. Why, they said, because he is uh, our, uh, the closest we can get to God. She didn't say he was God. She said he's the closest we can get to God. Uh, I'm going to put, uh, give the Pope credit. I don't think he would like that. Say He never pr- purports to be God. He's a man and perhaps a good man. I don't know the character of the man. I have no reason to doubt that he's a good and virtuous man. Don't misunderstand. But you don't need Moses, a Pope, a pastor <laughs> to get you close to God. Timothy, for there is one God. And uh, for this one God and one mediator between man and God, the man, Christ Jesus, he gets us close to God. You don't have to go to Israel to get close to meet up with God. Are you kidding me? Oh, yeah, you want to go to Israel to tell them about God and to be accentuated in your, in your walk with God. I got that. But, man, I, you can get close to God in Pearland, Texas. I mean, you don't have to go on a flight to Israel to find God. You have to go on a flight of faith to find your way to the foot of the cross. Jesus gets you to God. So you see, you see, can you see what, can you see the difference between a relationship with Christ and religion? Even no matter how virtuous and beautiful as in many respects it is, what a distraction from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And so Paul says, when he uses the term traditions here, he's not talking about human traditions. He's talking about biblical orthodoxy. And he closes in verses 16 and 17 to pray uh, for them. And he essentially says, you know, this God who has loved us and given us eternal comfort. You know why the comfort is eternal? Because we're eternal and so is God who gives it. This God who's loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope. You know how he gave it? By grace. See those two words, by grace? religion, you just can't get a clear concept of grace in any of the isms I mentioned to you. You can't. What is it? Is it God's provision for my salvation or is it me in partnership with God? He did a great thing on the cross. Thank you so much. But apparently I have to add to it through all these religious practices and tenets. No, no, no. Listen, it's either all of grace or none of it is of grace. And if it's all of grace, two things happen. Pressure is off of you and me. I don't ever have to wonder where I am with God. I am the beloved of the Lord by grace. That's one thing it does. takes the pressure off of me. Second thing, gives all the glory to God. I can't take credit for being a Jew, for being a Catholic, for being a Mormon, for being a this, for being a that. I'm not going to fight to defend those particular expressions of faith. None of those usher me into heaven and give me assurance. Nothing like that. It's all of grace through faith because of the shed blood of the Lamb. So those two words, by grace, in practice, you're not going to see that in any other world religion. You only see that in biblical Christianity. And so Paul says, by grace, may he give comfort and strength in your hearts. And that's what every one of us needs until the time he returns. Comfort and strength to go on. And Paul says, I'm asking God the Son. I'm asking God the Father to give you those things. Why? So in every good word and work, you can, you can glorify him. Do you notice what it says? Work and word. You know what that means? Our walk has to match our talk. <laughs> That's what it says. Many people are not turning against our Jesus. They're turning against us. Why? He's very attracted, attractive. When he's high and lifted up, he will draw men to himself. But we're not as attractive. Why not? Not because of physical attributes. Our walk is not matching our talk. We've become so relevant <laughs> today that the world has gotten into us and we have not influenced the world. We've taken on all the practices and ways to be relevant. The world's music, the world's dress, the world's this, the world's everything, to be relevant. Can I tell you something? They're not coming to our churches. <laughs> They're not coming to our churches at all. 
uh, we have to go to them. And they don't want us coming to them if we, if we look inconsistent between our words and our works. So, so what I would pray tonight when you go outside, are you going to look at the lunar eclipse? You're going to check it out? It's out there. It's a beautiful thing, all the rest. I wouldn't just focus on what does it mean? What does it portend? Well, you know, uh, all this numerology is no different than these girls going to uh, study Jewish occultism. Instead, I would say, oh, God, would you so fill me with your spirit that I would be holy as thou art holy? Would you so comfort and strengthen me that the way I live matches the truths that I have embraced? Would you so be real in my life that I can give not only a declaration of truth, but a demonstration of how you can change people's lives? Would you help me to do that in the way I talk, in the way I walk, in what I watch, in where I'm found, in what I drink, in what I eat, and all the rest of the stuff? Would you help me to be separated just as you are so that people will see the difference you can make in people's lives? That's ours. So if you want to look into tea leaves and figure out when Jesus is coming, have a good time. Paul says you got enough to do to make sure your walk matches your talk. Lord Jesus, uh, thanks for everything. As you were with the Thessalonians, so you are with us. That's the beauty of the Bible. So wonderfully relevant to us today. We need the helps and encouragement our fellow believers in Thessalonica did. We don't want to be tossed and turned by every wind of doctrine. We don't want to squeeze out of the Bible more than you intend for us to know. We don't want to go beyond it. We want to invest in what's in it with accuracy. Thank you for entrusting to us life-changing truths, which assure us you've had your eye on us from the beginning, those of us who believe. You have your loving hand and eye and attention focused upon us until you bring us forth holy and blameless and beyond reproach and sharing in your eternal glory. Until then, oh God, would you give me, would you give us the comfort and the strength we need to stand firm, to hold on to the truths of the faith and to bring glory to your name. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you folks. See you sometime.